Our scripture reading this evening is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. text for the sermon of the last two verses of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, The hymn there is Jesus, of course. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things. And now the hymn here in verse 10 is God. It became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And now in verse 11, the he is Jesus again. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, But he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted." So far we read God's holy word. Again, then verses 17 and 18. And I'll just make a couple of literal changes in the verse. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him, that is, it was necessary for him, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation, or more literally, propitiation. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor, to help them that are tempted. 
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 2 of Hebrews helps to develop the main theme of the book of Hebrews, which exalts Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better mediator, the excellent mediator of a better covenant. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. And this, this chapter emphasizes that Jesus is far better. He is more glorious. He is more powerful than the angels, than Moses, than Joshua, than Aaron. He is the mediator of a new and better covenant than they had in the Old Testament. The covenant is, in fact, established through the work of Jesus, the mediator, He is the captain of our salvation, and through him, he redeems, he redeems and delivers his people, the people of God. He could do this because he was one with them, one with the people, and because he is one with them, he would take on flesh besides and become very much like them. That he is one with them already is true from the Old Testament as it quotes from the Old Testament and says, this is what Jesus said already then in verse 12, I will declare thy name unto my brethren, my brethren. He calls the people of God his brothers. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him as they, God's people, put trust in God. So I, says Jesus, I likewise put my trust in him. And then, and again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. He took on himself then the, the form, the, the very nature of men, flesh and blood, not the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham, so that he would be identical to the people, his own brothers, his adopted brothers and sisters, taking on a human nature so that he could deliver them from the power of death. And he does that particularly through the work of a high priest. And that brings us to the text that Jesus, it was necessary for him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types, and because he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament pictures, he is, of course, far better. The reality is always better than a picture of the reality. Jesus is the true high priest. And he had to be, to be the true high priest, a merciful and faithful high priest to do the work that God gave him to do. If he were to make reconciliation or literally a propitiation, a payment for the sins of the people, he would have to be merciful. And that's what stands out in the text, that he is our merciful high priest. And it is an obvious benefit for us that he is that because God, by shaping and molding him into that kind of a merciful and faithful high priest, suffered in this life, even being tempted, so that he is able to help us in our trials and in our temptations. Let's examine then these verses under the theme, our merciful and faithful high priest. Notice in the first place the requirements, secondly the preparation, how did God prepare him, and then thirdly the blessing for us to have a merciful and faithful high priest. When we speak of the requirements, I look at it from two different points of view. First of all, there are requirements that every high priest must have, and that is he must be merciful and faithful. But on the other hand, the requirement is that there's a certain work that a high priest must do. He offers sacrifice, and that's the other requirement of the high priest, that he make a propitiation. So we'll look at all of that under the first point. First of all, the requirements from the point of view of the the qualities that a high priest must have to be merciful and faithful. To understand 
that we need to go back to the Old Testament because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God gave his people a high priest. And the high priest stood, as it were, before the very face of God on behalf of the people. He was their representative before the face of God. And he offered sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, and he would make intercession to God on behalf of the people that he represented. But when he did his work of offering sacrifices and making intercession, praying to, the, to God on behalf of the people, it could, be not, it could not be done, if it were to be done properly, it could not be done in a cold and impersonal manner as if it were just kind of a job that he did. A good high priest cared about the people, and therefore he would be merciful. Mercy has two different aspects to it. In the first place, mercy is pity or sympathy. And the word sympathy, if you've taken some Latin, you know it means Literally, to suffer with, to suffer with, sympathy. If a man is merciful, therefore is, has pity or sympathy, then suffering that he sees makes him to feel something of the pain that the other person is experiencing. That's sympathy or pity. In some way, he shares in the suffering. This is captured in Psalm 103, verse 13. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. A father has pity on his children. When he sees one of his children lying in a bed of affliction, he is moved by that. It is moved even to tears when he beholds his son or his daughter suffering on the bed of affliction. He suffers with his child. That's pity. That's one of the aspects of mercy. A second aspect of mercy is that mercy wants to lift up out of the misery. And that's kindness. There's pity, feeling something when someone is suffering, but there's the kindness aspect that wants to deliver out of that. When blind Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy upon me. He wasn't merely asking Jesus to feel sorry for him. He was asking Jesus to do something for him, lift him up out of his misery. And that's what Jesus did. He had mercy on him. Mercy is action. Mercy is helping someone in distress. Mercy, one who has mercy and beholds someone in distress will try to relieve the suffering, to take away the pain, to dry the tears, and to make that person to be happy once again. Mercy is pity, feeling with someone in their sorrow. And it is kindness, lifting them up. A high priest must be merciful. He must also be faithful. Again, go to the Old Testament. One who was a high priest had an office. And with every office comes responsibilities, comes duties that he's expected to perform. The Old Testament, he stood before God, he offered the sacrifices, he offered the incense, he would bring these things before God, and he had to be faithful in his work. He had to do it exactly as God told him to do it. An unfaithful high priest was an abomination to God. You think of the horrible high priests that were the sons of Eli and how they polluted the office. You think of the horrible high priests that were there when Jesus was crucified they were unfaithful. One who is faithful is trustworthy. People can and do put their trust in him. 
He is told to do something. He does it. He does exactly what he is told to do. You give him something of your possessions and he will take care of it. He will not abuse it. He is trustworthy. He is faithful in all his work. The text spells that out a little bit. He must be a faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God. The things pertaining to God. Literally, with respect to the toward God things. The things that are toward Him before the very face of God. Everything that God gave Him to do on behalf of the people, He had to do those things faithfully. Offer the sacrifices as God said. With His hand putting the guilt on the animal, slitting the animal's throat, collecting the blood, offering exactly it as God determined it had to be done. Taking the the incense, the, the coals from that altar, bringing the incense into the temple, doing it exactly as God commanded him to do. He must be faithful in his work. Merciful and faithful. What's the relationship between the two? Can we spell that out a little bit? As such, there is a reason why the word merciful comes first in the text. That stands out more than faithful, although you couldn't take away either one of them. But a a high priest must be merciful. Mercy arises out of the love that he has for his people. You can't really... Feel anything for somebody that you do not love. It's only when you love them that your heart goes out to them. Then you are merciful. A high priest must love the people of God, and it's out of that love that he has for them that he would have mercy upon the people of God. Only a merciful high priest could really be faithful. Even an unmerciful one might carry out the duties in a technically correct way, but his heart would not be in it. He must be merciful. The text says literally he must become. It doesn't say that. It says in the English that he might be, but literally it's that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. And that does not mean that Christ came into the world and he was not merciful and he was not faithful and he had to somehow become that. That's not the idea. That's impossible. He is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, He is eternally merciful. He is absolutely faithful. It's it's not something that He had to pick up. But the, the, the emphasis of the text is that through the office of a high priest, through his, his human nature, He had to display these characteristics In his office, he had to display the mercy of God. He had to display the faithfulness of God in and through his human nature. God is eternally faithful and merciful. But Jesus came to reveal that to his people in the office that he would fill. Those are the characteristics that a high priest must have. He must be merciful. He must be faithful. But the purpose is that he had to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. Or a propitiation. Because that's literally what the word is in other places. It's translated propitiation. A propitiation is a payment. It's a payment that covers a debt that is owed. That's the idea. The Old Testament high priest did this. The sins of the people were a debt owed to God. But he would take of the blood of the goat offering on the great day of atonement, He would take of the blood of that goat offering and he would go into the most holy place only one time a year and he would dip his finger into that bowl of blood and he would sprinkle it on the top of the ark, seven drops of blood. 
That was an that was a propitiation, a payment for the sins of the people. Now, very interesting that the the ark, of course, was a box that contained different things, like a pot of manna and the the commandments and Aaron's rod that budded. But the top of the ark had its own name. In the Old Testament, it's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat. But that name in the New Testament is exactly the word translated reconciliation, which I hope not to confuse you, is propitiation. So that the place of the ark where the the priest would drop the blood was the place of propitiation. It's the place of mercy. It's the place where the sins of the people would be covered and they would find mercy from God because of the payment of sin. This is what the blood did on the great day of atonement. Now the blood covers. The blood covers not in the sense that it just covers it up like you have a a mess and you kind of throw a blanket over the top so you can't see it anymore. Not that kind of a coverage, but it's a coverage of a payment. The way an insurance policy covers the cost of debt. If you have insurance, medical insurance, and you go into the hospital, if you are completely covered, you might have a, a, a... $50,000, $100,000 bill, but if the insurance is a full coverage, then you walk out of the hospital owing nothing. It has covered your debt. That's the sense of the blood. It covered the debt, paid the debt of the people of God. He sprinkled the mercy seat covered the sins, paid for the sins of the people. From a typical point of view, of course, the blood didn't really pay for anything because it was the blood of a, of a goat and other animals that they offered on the, on the altar. But the guilt was covered. In a typical way, God's justice was satisfied. The animal had been consumed on the altar, showing the wrath of God against sin, and now the sins of God's people were covered by the blood. That's the picture. Christ is the reality. God ordained Christ to make a propitiation, to make a payment for the sins of the people. His suffering and death on the cross would be the means by which he would accomplish this propitiation. The mediator of the covenant, therefore, that would establish the covenant had to be a merciful and faithful high priest in order to make that kind of a payment or propitiation. This is what Jesus came to do, to die. To die on the cross, the accursed tree, to shed his own blood, thereby taking the curse of God upon him from off his people onto himself, taking the guilt of his people on himself, and making a payment for their sins. He was the high priest offering the sacrifice. He was also the lamb that was offered For the sins of the people. He was both at once. But you see he had to be. A high priest. To offer such a sacrifice. The blood of the cross is atoning blood. It's not ordinary blood. Whosoever is covered by the blood of the cross. Owes nothing. His debt is paid. It is covered. And that's why. The word reconciliation is used in the text. There's something very beautiful about that because once the debt is paid, there isn't anything that separates God from his people. They are reconciled to God. They can have fellowship with him. That's a beautiful idea. And and so I don't mind the translation, but understand behind reconciliation is a payment that had to be made. The question is for whom... Did he die, or who is covered by the blood of the sacrifice? 
It says that he had to make a propitiation or reconciliation for the sins of the people. For the sins of the people. This is very much in harmony with the figure of the Old Testament. And it points us to the fact that the atonement is a particular atonement. It is not for the sins of all men. It is for a particular people. That's evident from the fact that it says for the sins of the people. And you go back to the Old Testament, and Aaron, when he would offer the offerings, was making a sacrifice and then sprinkling the blood on the, on the mercy seat for Israel. He was not doing that for the Philistines. He was not doing that for the Egyptians. He was doing it for the people of whom he was the high priest. This is the people. And so for Jesus, the question is, who are the people? Of whom is Jesus the high priest? We could say it in a number of ways. It's for all the covenant people. For all the covenant people. He's the mediator of the covenant. His sacrifice would be for those who are covenant people. The text, in the context, he tells us who they are. They're my brethren. That's who they are. They're my brothers and sisters, the ones who have been adopted into the very family of God. It's the people that the, it's the children which the Lord hath given me. In eternity, God gave people to Jesus. People who were chosen by God unto salvation, God gave them to Jesus. These are your children, Jesus. These are the people you will redeem. These are the ones whose debt is covered by the atonement. You see why he had to be a merciful and faithful high priest? In order to offer this kind of a sacrifice, that would be a true propitiation, a true payment for the sins of the people. He surely had to be faithful. He had to do absolutely everything God sent him to do. He could not do half the job. He could not do three quarters of the job. He could not say, well, I've fulfilled most of the will of God. He had to fulfill every single solitary Old Testament prophecy about him. Every law that was there concerning him, he had to fulfill. Every work God sent him to do. Every aspect of God's eternal counsel, Jesus must do faithfully. And his whole life had to be faithful. Because if he had strayed just for a second... Just for a second and sinned against God, it would be all over. He could not go on as the sinless lamb. He would have his own sins to pay for. He could not pay for anybody else's. He had to be a faithful high priest. But he also had to be merciful because he would see his brethren in distress. And show mercy. He could not come into this world and say, well, I have a job to do, don't bother me. And be cold and indifferent to the sufferings of his people. Jesus could not do that. You think of Annas and Caiaphas at the time of Jesus. Their cold indifference to the people. They only cared about themselves. They would not lay down their lives for anybody. Jesus was merciful. How many times do you not read in the gospel accounts of how Jesus, bone-weary, exhausted, and yet when somebody came to him, with crowds of people came to him with their sick, he had compassion on them. Compassion, sympathy, pity. And he healed them. Kindness. He was a merciful high priest. Of that there is no doubt. If he were not, how could he lay down his life for them? If he did not love them, 
and have compassion on them, seeing them in their suffering where he knew that the root cause of all their suffering was sin. He knew that. And then think about the fact that his own people rejected him. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Some of his own disciples denied him. Some of the people for whom he died helped crucify him. And if he didn't have a heart full of love and mercy, what would he have done? What would, what would he have done? What would you and I have done? If you're going to treat me that way, forget it. I'm not going to die for you if that's the way you're going to treat me. But he never did because he was faithful and merciful, both. And that's why he offered himself a propitiation. That's how God prepared him for the task, too. By making Jesus to be like his brethren. The first part of verse 17 emphasizes that wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. The word behooved there is, is, and I cannot overstate how strong that is. It is absolutely necessary. He was under obligation. That's the sense of behooved. Absolutely necessary for him to be made like his brethren. And that means he took on himself flesh and blood. He who is God of all things, Lord of lords, King of kings, exalted eternally, took on himself human flesh and came and lived here in the earth. This is the incarnation. He took on himself, the previous verse says, the the seed of Abraham, the very nature of the Jewish people, not the nature of angels, Not a special kind of human nature. No, it was the nature of Abraham. It was a Jewish human nature. It was real. A real human nature with flesh and blood, with a human mind, a human soul, a human will, human emotions, everything like his brethren in all things. He was not born of a sinless woman and had a special human nature. He did not have a human nature like Adam's before the fall. He was like unto his brethren in every regard except one, that he had no sin. That's the only difference. And that's a spiritual difference. From every psychological or physical point of view, he was just like us. Why is this so important? That the text says it behooved him. It was absolutely necessary for him to be made like his brethren. In order for him to be a merciful and faithful high priest, he had to be one man like his brothers. Well, a couple of things we can point out. First of all, he had to be one with them organically. He had to be. The same life, the same flesh, the same nature of man... Only then could he make that propitiatory sacrifice. Because God in his perfect justice determined that the sins of the people of God had to be paid for by the enduring of the wrath of God. And the very same exact nature, body and soul, that committed sins against God had to bear the punishment. God could not pour out His wrath against the sins of a human being on a goat or an ox or even an angel. It had to be the very exact same nature that sinned against God with a human mind and will and emotions and body that would bear the wrath and make a payment. Not only that, but he had to be organically one with them because when Jesus would earn the benefits of salvation, 
Those benefits were in him, and he would now, because he is one with us, be able to confer those benefits to us. The life that he has, he is able to give to you, because he has it in a human nature. It's compatible with you. It's not coming out of a goat to you. It's not coming out of an angel to you. It's coming out of a human nature to you. The benefits that Jesus earned in his own human nature, he confers to you and me in our human nature. Faith and life and glory are given to us from Jesus who is one with us, organically one with us. So that in the first place, he had to be one with us. Secondly, he had to live the life of his brethren. He had to live a life that included pain and sorrow and hardship. He would be born into a family that was dirt poor. He would live in a family with brothers and sisters and father and mother, all of whom were sinners. Every one of them sinned against each other and against him. That was his life. He would be hungry. He would cry. He would become exhausted. He would become sick. He lived the life of his brethren. He would live in a world, not for just a couple of days, but for 33 years, in a world that would abound in fighting, ridicule, oppression, enmity, sickness, and death. He would experience all of that. He had to. It was necessary to know the life of his brothers and sisters from experience so that he could truly be merciful. That's true, isn't it? Those who suffer a particular kind of affliction understand and have a lot of sympathy toward others who have that affliction. I have never had cancer. I have never been told by a doctor that you have cancer and you have to have radiation or chemo or you only have a certain amount of time to live. I've never experienced that. If you would tell me after the worship service today that you have cancer, my heart would go out to you. But someone who has heard that from a doctor will understand far better than I what that means. I have not lost my wife, I have not lost a child in death. And for those who have lost a husband or a wife or a child, my heart goes out. And yet somebody who has experienced that, they know it from experience. Their sympathy, their ability to have pity, sympathy, you see, is is far greater because they have lived through that. They understand what you're going through. This is the point. Jesus had to be made like unto his brethren to live through our life in order to be truly sympathetic, merciful. And he was. He was made like unto us 
even to the point of suffering temptation. Temptation. That's the text. He, for, in verse 18, For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted. Now, temptation is, is an activity of the devil whereby he tries to make the way of obedience look ugly and uninviting, distasteful in the extreme, and to make disobedience appear attractive. That's a temptation. Jesus suffered temptation. The Gospels give us some graphic examples of that. Forty days and forty nights, living in a deserted place, wrestling with Satan's temptations, praying, fasting, Jesus fought temptation. In fact, he suffered. That's what the text says. He suffered being tempted. It was not painless for Jesus. It was not something that Jesus could say, well, it doesn't bother me. No, it doesn't, nothing to it. It wasn't like that. To go without food for 40 days and 40 nights, his stomach was no different from yours. After about five hours, what do our children say? I'm starving. Jesus did that for 40 days. No companionship, no friendly encouragement, only Satan's taunting words, if thou be... These were real temptations. Now, this is very difficult for for us to grasp. I, I really struggle with this because on the one hand, Jesus could not sin. He couldn't. Because he is the person of the Son of God. God cannot sin. It is absolutely impossible. And if there was something about the way that Satan would present it, that from a human point of view, though he did not want the temptation, he was never attracted to it from that point of view, as we are attracted to temptation, he was not attracted to it, and yet it was something he suffered, he endured, fought against temptation. This was true of all his life. We know he suffered. He lived with mocking. He was contradicted. He was falsely accused. He was later tried and convicted as a common criminal and nailed to a cross. And in the face of all of that, the constant temptation from Satan, you don't have to go this way. You don't have to go the way that you are. There is a much easier way. There is a much better way for you to go. Constant temptation. Satan even used Jesus' mother and his brothers and his disciples to tempt Jesus to be unfaithful. They wanted him to stop. It was embarrassing. And when Jesus was talking about going the way of suffering... His disciple says, be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. You don't have to go through that. That's the hardest kind of temptation. When your closest friends and relatives are saying, you don't have to go that way. The way of obedience, the way of repenting, the way of turning from sin. Oh, there's a much easier way for you to go. Those are the hardest kinds of temptations. Christ fought sin, confronted it. Again, never attracted to the sin, because that itself is a sin, to delight in something that's wrong. Christ was tempted. Every trial he went through, the devil was there To try to turn the trial into a temptation for him. Go the way of the go the easy way, go the way of disobedience. Jesus was prepared to be a merciful and faithful high priest by suffering temptation. 
He became like us in all things, even to be tempted. In many ways, his temptations are more severe than more, more severe, more of a suffering. Because the reality is that sin doesn't bother us so much. It's not something that, that repulses us as it did the Lord who was absolutely holy. And besides that, he was the son of God. He could have simply gotten out of this. But he continued. He persevered. He faced every trial, every temptation, and rejected the way of sin. The blessing for us is then that we have such a merciful and faithful high priest. He has made reconciliation for our sin. He did, in fact, become like us. He did, in fact, take our guilt upon himself. He did go to the cross and and pay the infinite and eternal wrath of God until he could say, it is finished. The propitiation is accomplished. None of their debt remains on my people. They are righteous because he was absolutely faithful and he redeemed us body and soul. But his work as a high priest continues. He still is a faithful and merciful high priest. And because of that, says verse 18, he is able to succor, to help them that are tempted. The word succor is literally to run to the cry of. Beautiful idea. To run to the cry of. As a mother in the home hears a scream outside from one of her children, and she runs to the cry. Or a father who gets a phone call from his son or daughter, and he rushes out of the house to help them, runs to their cry. Jesus does that in our trials, in our temptations. We are tempted. Sickness... Pain, persecution, death. Every one of those Satan uses to try to tempt us. God is not fair. The way is too hard for you. Why is this happening to you? You don't deserve this. Those are all temptations. Or Satan plants an idea. Or the world plants ideas, or our sinful flesh simply starts to lust after something, something that is evil. It's a temptation. We struggle. We fight because we have a new man in Jesus Christ that hates sin, that is repulsed by it, We have so much of the old man that is struggling and that wants the things of this world, wants to follow what Satan says, but we do have that new man in Jesus Christ that says, no, I mustn't, it's wrong, but it's a struggle. And sometimes our trials, which are temptations, as Satan uses them, God doesn't tempt us, but Satan will, sometimes they can be so heavy. Now we think it's too much. I can't do it. And so we cry out. We cry out to our merciful and faithful high priest. And he is able to succor. He is able to help. Now think about that from a number of points of view, how Jesus is able. In the first place, Just from his position and his power, he is able. He has all power. That's what he said to his disciples. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He has the power of God to execute the counsel of God. He can do anything. He has the ability to help you. But he's also the mediator, again, at God's right hand. And anything that he brings to his Father, the Father will give him 
This is what my people need, he can pray, and the Father will give him everything that the people need. He's the mediator, bringing the prayers of God's people, bringing their needs to God, and God gives it. He's able to help. But now that's just kind of from a a kind of technical point of view. Now think about the fact that from a subjective point of view, he is so able to help. Because he understands what you are going through. He was here. He went through this life. We may never say, Jesus does not understand how hard my way is. We may never say that. We may think it, but we have to chase it out. He understands. We may never say he never had to face this situation. His temptations could not have been as hard as mine are. To say it is immediately to say how wrong that is. He knows the way that you are going. He knows what it's like to be tempted every single day to forsake the way of obedience. He knows because he was tempted every day. The the devil trying to draw him away into disobedience. He knows what it is to be tempted to give up Christian principles, to give up the way of Scripture and and simply join with the world and their immorality. He knows that. That was surrounding him. He was tempted every day to think, the way of God is not good for me. This is not a good way. This can't be the right thing. So he understands. And when we cry, he runs. He comes in sympathy. He comes in mercy. And he forgives. He never excuses sin. He never says, oh, that's okay. That, that's all right that you sin. We'll, we'll, we'll just ignore that. No. He brings us to repentance. We, we must confess. But he forgives. And he gives strength to go forward. Battling the temptation. This is our high priest. Thank God. What what an amazing high priest. Merciful, faithful. God has given us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee for thy goodness to us. The glorious salvation worked out by such a one as the Lord Jesus Christ who became one with us that he might be that beautiful Savior and a merciful and faithful high priest. We give thee thanks for Jesus' sake. Amen.